BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. These are racist ideas, race-baiting ideas, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-women. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald, you don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Did Hillary Clinton have to be the first? You've heard a version of this sentiment. I'd love for a woman to be president, just not this woman. But there's a strong case for why the first female major party nominee was always going to be Hillary Clinton, or someone like her. Here's the argument. She has to be deeply familiar to us. She has to have that long government resume. Her politics have to be middle of the road. And maybe she has to be the wife of a former president. In our exploration of this, we'll ask a woman in the United States Senate about why it's so hard to crack that final ceiling. And we'll hear from a man who ran against Hillary Clinton and publicly struggled with how to effectively campaign against a woman. With me now to kick things off is none other than Gail Collins, the sage of the New York Times editorial page, who's written several books on women's history. Gail Collins, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. The concept we're discussing today is it had to be her. Did it have to be her? And I think it's actually a good idea to invert that question for a moment by asking who couldn't it have been when we think about a woman? What it couldn't have been is what everybody sort of deep in their heart wants, I guess, for everything. A new face, an exciting new person who the country didn't know, a kind of Barack Obama sort of figure who'd maybe been in the Senate for two years and only major national impact had been making one great speech that got everybody very excited. That kind of person, I don't think a woman could pull that off right now. It has to be somebody that we've had around for a long time and that we're deeply familiar with. If a woman running for president had the same qualifications and resume as Barack Obama, how would we, how would you think about them? Um, I don't know, because it's a different world now, because Hillary Clinton is running for president. The trick in this country, and what I've always thought, no matter what happens in this election, one of the great contributions Hillary Clinton has made to American history is that she made it seem sort of normal to have a woman running for president in 2008. Before then, it had never been a normal thing. It just was not part of any equation when you imagined candidates, debates, any of that stuff, and she made it normal. And that's so important when you think about our history of equal rights discrimination. That moment 
when I was young, the idea that there'd be a woman anchor on the news, I was just inconceivable. And everybody said, no, their voices sound wrong. People won't trust them. Duh, duh. And then now we've had 2,900 of them, and it's just a normal thing that nobody thinks about at all. And that's what you want to get to with everything about differences in race and gender and so on. And I remember when, when being in New Hampshire with Obama when they were he was first running, and he was making this great speech in some little town hall somewhere, and I was up in the attic with some of the other reporters, and one of them turned to me and said, wow, he could win this thing. This is amazing. Listen to him. He could win this thing, and it was so exciting. And that hasn't happened with a woman yet, and someday it will. Someday you will have some really charismatic woman who gets people all excited, and it doesn't matter that she's only been in the Senate for two years and that we don't know much about her except her story, whatever that might be. Well, that brings us to the question of why her. When we think about Hillary Clinton, it's very hard to separate her from the fact that she was a spouse of an American president. And there's a very long history of that. Women who arrive in office after their husbands have either been in office or even died in office. Stupendously long. In congressional history, until my lifetime certainly, the normal thing if you had a woman in Congress was that her husband died and she took over his seat. I think it was 1978, maybe, Nancy Kassenbaum, who was elected to the Senate, was the first woman ever elected to the Senate without being the wife of a normally dead senator or somehow taken away from the scene. And she was the daughter of a presidential candidate. It took into the 80s, really, when you could regard it as even vaguely possible that a woman who was just popping up there by herself could be elected to the Senate. It was it was very unusual. How did that work? I don't want to sound naive, but you're the you're the spouse of a lawmaker. The seat comes open. Did in many cases those spouses want the job? Someone encouraged them to want it? And why were they suddenly so much more acceptable than they would have been had they just woken up one morning and said, I want to do this? It depends. I mean, some of them didn't really want to do it. And they were just sort of in there, you know, sitting around for uh, for a little while. There was a, a famous saga of, I think it was Rebecca Felton, who was the first woman ever elected to the Senate. And all she wanted was to be sworn in. <laughs> that was her only goal in life. Her husband died, and she, they were sticking her in, but they had a guy that they were going to put in the Senate, but they just needed to fill this little space. And all she wanted was to be sworn in. They kept saying, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. It would be too complicated. No, 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 no. And finally, she really sat there, you know, and they finally gave in and swore her in and let her make a little five-minute speech, and then she went away forever. But that was sort of the beginning of this tradition. And Margaret Chase Smith, who was, you know, a great senator eventually, but she first came in. She was married to a congressman. He died. And often they want to stick the wife in to just fill out the season or whatever. But sometimes the wives then decide they want to keep going, sometimes to the chagrin of their parties. And, of course, so much has changed in terms of who gets to Congress these days. And, and later on, we're going to talk to Claire McCaskill, who didn't have a spouse in office to become a senator. And there are so many examples of that. And yet... The woman on the cusp of the presidency is the spouse of a former president. Does that feel like progress? It sort of feels like the next step up. You know, first you got a couple of women in the House doing this by themselves, and then you moved up to the Senate. Then you got women who were governors. Ella Grasso, governor elected in her own right when I was covering Connecticut back in the day. She was the first governor who had ever been elected whose husband had not been the governor before she got elected. And it's just it's one step after the other. And this is our first time with in 2008, too, were our first times where you had really a woman who, wow, you know, the nomination, she could get it, she could win. And it's given our history. It's not surprising. It's the wife of somebody who had the job first. 
On this question of being a spouse, is that about the familiarity that we get from seeing a spouse in public, or is it about something different? And if Bill had not been president, but somehow we had known Hillary in a very big public way, would that still have been enough? Probably. Uh, it's just, it's in a way an accident, I think, that she just happened to be the person that she is doing the stuff that she's done. But I mean, and everybody always talks about how, well, what if Hillary had never married Bill and she'd stayed in Washington? I doubt she would have gotten involved in running for office herself, but she certainly would have been some formidable person out there. But isn't that where we got the first taste of the potential she had to be our leader? Well, certainly, but if she had been first lady five years ago or three years ago and was running off that, there's no way on God's green earth that anybody would ever have elected her president. I mean, she has, I have to say, after starting out as the worst candidate I had ever experienced in my history of political reporting, she became a terrific candidate in New York. She figured out how to do it. She became a terrific senator for New York. She, I, I'm amazed today you, you sort of listen around and there's all of these very right-wing Republicans out there who will sort of, I don't know, you know, terrible, very, but when she does get elected, I really got along with her very well when we worked together in the Senate, so I could certainly still get Iowa their corn subsidy or whatever it is I need. But she became the Secretary of State, which is sort of a humongous you know, power position. So I think people are past that, but I don't think a first lady can run for president as the first lady. Michelle Obama could not run for president. So, Gail, I want to play for you some of the questions that Hillary Clinton has been asked throughout her public career. And I think the theme will emerge about why they're interesting, and then I would like to get your reaction. One gets the impression that, <clears throat> excuse me, you're really not <clears throat> all that interested possibly in state dinners and teas and garden parties. Do you like doing stuff, Hillary, like saying, I like that um, yellow tablecloth with the red napkins or whatever and looking at the the centerpiece and yeah. things like that? Is that fun to you? What about the comparisons to Lady Macbeth? Do you think it's because you're a powerful woman or you don't walk around the White House saying out damn spot? <laughs> Do you think the American people are ready yet to have a first lady who has strong opinions and an agenda? Men won't vote for Hillary Clinton because she reminds them of their nagging wives. When Hillary Clinton speaks, men hear, take out the garbage. I admire what Senator Clinton has done for America. Um, I'm sure about that coat. <laughs> You get the idea. I get it. There's a trend there, yeah. The Macbeth stuff, I, the Lady Macbeth stuff, I had never heard before. That's really amazing. And so many of them are women interrogators. <laughs> you know, when I start, I, I did a book years and years ago about gossip and politics. And I developed a theory, which I'm willing to stick with, whether right or wrong, that often if you've got these great trends of political gossip about somebody, that it reveals some interfere or discomfort on the part of the population. Like back in the day, you would often get rumors that a candidate for president was secretly black, that they had Negro blood was the thing they always used to use. And that was there was clearly a terror there of the idea that black people would be able to move up and have any kind of power. And with Hillary Clinton, when she first got in the White House, there was this rumor that went on forever. In fact, it was in a book that a Secret Service guy who made up, I swear, his entire book published just this year that she and Bill had had a fight and she had thrown a vase at him. And it went on and on and on and on. And she went, she took a tour with somebody, I think it was Katie Couric or somebody through the White House. And whoever it was said, well, which is the vase that you threw for Bill? We want to tell her about that. It was just a, a meme. It happened everywhere. And um, I think it was in part because of the idea that this was a different kind of woman 
that we were certainly not used to seeing as first lady and not used to seeing on that kind of executive scale, who was very opinionated, who had thoughts of her own, who was going to go forward, who's going to be aggressive about pushing policies. And that scared people. It sent them back a little bit. And you developed this great rumor, this classic rumor, that she had thrown dangerous objects at the president. You've spent a fair amount of time with Hillary Clinton, right? Well, I mean, not intimately, but I, you know, I've interviewed her a bunch of times. Have you talked to her about gender, about being a woman, and, and how does she talk about it, either maybe unguardedly on the record or off the record or, or however you've talked to her? The only time it was really sort of a central thing that I can remember, and I cannot remember what the exact situation was, but she had, she had not dropped out of the 2008 race, but she had clearly was... She was in a sort of a Bernie Sanders position. Everybody was going, you know, get out, get out, get out. Let's get this over with. And she was still there. And um, I was interviewing her for a book that was not going to be written until after the election. So it was sort of an out-of-context kind of, of, of thing. And we were just sitting there, and she just said, they, they just think because I'm a girl— I'm not going to do, I'm going to drop out. They just think, oh, well, the girl's going to just drop out. You know, she's not going to sit in there and fight. She'll, it's her time to get out. She's in the way. She'll do it. Because I'm not going to do that to my daughter. I'm not going to let my daughter think that because I was a girl, I had to drop out early and give up this fight. And it was a very kind of gendered moment that you don't see that often um, from, you know, women in that position. And it was just, I mean, it was a terrible moment for her. She, this is, she really, fought this great fight. And she, frankly, if things had gone differently in very small ways, she could have won the nomination. And there she was. And the idea that then people were saying, oh, come on, get out of the way, you're you're a lot of trouble, was just really tearing at her. When Hillary Clinton ran for Senate in 2000, her opponent was a young male congressman. And he seems to struggle with how exactly a man is supposed to behave around a woman. And they had an exchange that many remember as pretty much the defining thing in the campaign. I want you to talk about that. I have to say, poor Rick Lazio. They had this debate, and um, he's trying to get traction. You know, he's trying to do something. I can't even remember what it was. It was something about campaign finance or outside something. Spending. Outside spending. And he wanted her to know if she would commit to signing a pledge not to accept certain kinds of outside you money. Give me the well, right, here. right here. Would you give right me? Right here. Sign it right now. Well, we'll, we'll shake, we'll shake no, on no, this. No, no, I want your signature because I think that everybody wants to see you sign uh, And he walked over to her and said, would you sign this? And it's very unusual. You do not see in a debate people going over and physically confronting another person ever. And the fact that it was a guy doing it to a person who was so uniquely a woman running for this job was so startling. And I remember the next day, I, you know, I said, he invaded her space. Oh, no, it was terrible. I mean, it you was, wrote that? I did. I wrote it. I mean, it was horrible. He invaded her space. I was really very stunned by this bad behavior. And, and it, it, when you think about it, Rick, Hillary Clinton is so much more formidable as a person than Rick Lazio was that the idea that this was a threat was ridiculous. But it was the thing that kind of defined that race at that point. He made a huge error. And at that particular time in history, being a woman worked really well for Hillary Clinton. It was very useful. Gail, thank you very much for being here. It was a pleasure. Anytime, Michael. I wondered what Rick Lazio thought about that memorable debate moment 16 years later. So I asked him. Yeah, this was the first debate, first televised debate. It was a nationally televised debate. And um, 
The mistake that I made, and it was a mistake, was to create an optic where it looked like I was somebody other than who I was. It looked like I was invading her space and was not chivalrous, I think, at some level. And while on points, I'm completely comfortable that that was a fair and compelling point to make on campaign finance reform, she was able to spin that very effectively after the debate was over. After that debate, when you left the stage, did you have any sense that this would be a defining moment and not in a good way for you? Well, it was interesting. When I woke up the next morning, I mean, I, I mean, our folks all thought that we had won the debate hands down. And even the next morning as we woke up, I remember looking at a number of newspaper reports, including one that sort of canvassed a bunch of campaign experts and reporters and, and had a majority of them saying that I had won the debate. It was only about 12 or 18 hours later when we began to see a clip played over and over of just that one moment of the debate. And it became one of those things almost like Nixon-Kennedy. If you, if you saw the debate, you were there in person, you might think one thing. But if you just heard about it or saw an excerpt of it, you might have a different opinion. And so even if I look at it now, I say to myself, wow, that was a little too amped up for me and didn't look – genuine for me. In fact, what had happened before the debate was my campaign strategist had said, we just got some poll numbers in, good news. They like you better than they like her. They think you've got more relevant and better experience than than her. But you look young and they think she's tough and you can't be too tough when you go out there. You can't be too tough. So, you know, that was probably wrong guidance for me. I really need to be true to myself and in terms of my own style and tone. And I think I got out of my zone a little bit with that moment. But it was spun uh, in the media and shown over and over again. And it looked like it was, you know, an overbearing male that was approaching a female. And, you know, candidly, I think if that were to happen today, the reaction would be different partly because people know more about Hillary Clinton and partly because I think people do see more of a level playing field. I'm not saying in terms of jobs and rights and things like that. I'm just saying I think in the, in the political world that they expect, uh, whether you're a male or female, to be able to compete on a, on a level playing field. Your chivalry was challenged after that debate. You seemed to cross some kind of invisible line for a male candidate by invading Hillary Clinton's space. But now it's 16 years later, and Donald Trump has basically steamrolled over those lines. Do you feel like your actions were comparatively mild or quaint looking back? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think I thought I thought that from the beginning of his campaign. I was like, they, and I think some of it is is the evolution of time, and some of it is how people see him. I think, you know, people expect him to be boorish from time to time. And so they ironically give him a bit of a, of a pass when he is, when he continues to be boorish because they know it's just him. It's just the way he is. And he treats everybody that way. He treats women that way, treats men that way. So I think in the same way that there are people that have given Hillary Clinton a pass when she's fibbing on something because it's like, oh, that's Hillary, is Hillary, and either you like her and you overlook it, you know, or you you steam and you say, gee, this is, you know, exactly why I don't like her. To me, it's um, also a statement about the low expectations that voters have for their candidates, and that's disappointing and sad to me. Congressman, thank you very much for being here. We appreciate it. Sure. It was great to be on.
there's danger out there. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So that's a lesson in modern politics. Gender and how we expect men and women to behave and to interact with one another can frame moments in unexpected and really powerful ways, fairly or not fairly at all. But these moments can also be more overtly gendered. I asked Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri about that. And then I asked her to weigh in on this theory that Hillary Clinton had to be first. Senator McCaskill, we're so grateful to have you today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So we're talking here today about about Hillary Clinton and the role of gender. But, and by having that conversation, we're implicitly saying that gender is a big factor and a big deal in this election. And I wanted to, to start by asking you if you think that's the right emphasis and the right focus, this, this question of gender. Well, I think it's unavoidable, and I think to not talk about it, it really would not be authentic. It is almost 100 years, but only 100 years, since women could even vote in this country. And many of us are painfully aware of how many countries around the world have elected and admired women executives in their government. And it is embarrassing to many of us that America has not taken that step. And so to have a woman who is as accomplished as Hillary Clinton, who is as knowledgeable as Hillary Clinton, I mean, the irony is that, you know, everyone always would pat women on the head and say, well, you know, as soon as, you know, a woman's qualified, there'll be a woman president. And now we have uh, a stark differential in qualifications. And now it seems to be all about her integrity and how likable she is. What do you say to women who wish that the first woman president was somehow somebody else. And now you're a supporter of Hillary Clinton's, but stepping away from that for just a minute, does it matter to, to you, should it matter to anyone, exactly who breaks the ceiling? Uh, I find that sentiment depressing. You know, sometimes women, we are our own worst enemy. Uh, we are hard on each other. We are sometimes way too judgmental. I can tell stories in my career about women being... Um, cruel and mean about me and, and my accomplishments. And I think now is the time for women of this country to take a really hard look at these two candidates and realize that we have an opportunity uh, to have a very knowledgeable and a very strong woman to lead this country. And I, I think to diminish 
that because uh, she is married to Bill Clinton or because of all the other problems she's had to live through because she's been in the public eye for decades, I think it's terribly unfair to her. I want to ask you about something you said in the middle of that answer about the way you were treated as a lawmaker. And you've had a career that spans local, state, and now federal government, so you may have had many experiences like this. But I I would like for you to share a few of those experiences. Well, um, one that stands out, when I was a state legislator, I was very young, and I was single. And I came home to Kansas City for the weekend, and I had a date. And I wore a leather skirt. It wasn't that short. And I didn't put on my uniform that I typically wore to the legislature, which was, you know, emulating what men wore except in a skirt and a suit with a floppy tie. I had this leather skirt on and a, you know, a fuzzy sweater, and my date and I went to a party, and the host of the party called me the next day and said, "Um, i got to tell you what was said when you walked through the door. Uh, This woman turned to me and said, well, who is that? And I said, you know, I told her that it was a state representative. And she said, well, I don't care. He didn't have to bring a whore with him. Jeez. So, you know, that's just one example I can give of many. My colleagues in the state legislature uh, were incredibly sexist in many times. I had the Speaker of the House. Uh, when I asked him for help in getting the bill out of committee, he asked me if I brought my knee pads with me uh, back in the early 80s. Um, so I've seen... And I hasten to add, none of that kind of behavior has occurred since I've been in the United States Senate. That is truly My shocking. My colleagues are incredibly respectful, and and um, I've I've seen not a whiff of that since I arrived in the U.S. Senate. But I certainly have, through my career, seen uh, that behavior change. But on your way to the Senate, you did experience something quite memorable, which was you're a Republican opponent in that race, Todd Akin, describing the way you performed in a debate as not ladylike. What was that about? Well, it's 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 one of the things. That's why my book, I, I wrote a book about uh, my career, and it's called Plenty Ladylike, because I think ladylike is one of those kissing cousins to the word bossy. I was brought up when I was very young, not by my parents, because my parents were pushing me to be bold and bossy and all those things, but around me, you know, that ladylike was seen and not heard, that ladylike, um, you know, didn't ever offer an opinion around men. And so, uh, and ladylike certainly was never aggressive. So I think we've got to, like, turn that term and own it and say ladylike is, in fact, being strong, being aggressive, being opinionated, willing to change the world, willing to shake things up. But it is the same when he said that, and by the way, that was just 2012, after the debate, when he said I just wasn't um, as ladylike as I had been. Uh, that, that's a dog whistle to women. They get it that a man is telling a woman to be quiet and sit down. And uh, I think women are much more sensitive to that than men might imagine. I've noticed, and I wonder if you have too, that Hillary Clinton talked less about gender in 2000 when she ran for the Senate and, and even in the 2008 presidential bid than she does now. Um, do you think that's true, and why do you think that's changed? Well, I think that you learn, and, and I think she made a mistake not talking about it more in her previous presidential campaign. I think probably it was because all of us have it drilled into us that you've got to be overprepared in order to prevail in politics if you're a woman. Um, I've made mistakes in campaigns where I was 
too knowledgeable and not likable enough, not relatable, I should say, not likable, but not relatable enough. I was an encyclopedia, and I learned from that mistake and realized that, yes, it's important that you're prepared, but you also have to be relatable. And um, I think that notion has kind of been turned on its head because now she's so prepared, and it you know, ostensibly does not matter to a wide swath of Americans. And I think we were all taught don't emphasize you're a woman, emphasize that you're qualified because nobody wants you to be elected because you're a woman. And frankly, I think there is something that's very inspiring about the fact that we're going to elect a woman. And presidential politics should be inspirational. So I want to ask you about 2008 because as important as it was to so many women to elect Hillary Clinton and any and a woman as the Democratic nominee, clearly a number of people made a decision to endorse her rival, and, and you were one of them back in the primaries of in 2008. And how did you make that decision as, as a woman and as somebody who could clearly come to a judgment about those two candidates? It was really hard. Um, you know, I, I kept saying to my supporters who were disappointed in my decision, I mean, it's not like I went for the good old boy. Uh, we had two historic candidates. At the time, I believed that Barack Obama was going to signify a turning of the page in the country and going forward and the future. And fair or unfair, the reality was I didn't think that it, in that election that she would be quite as strong a candidate in the general that Obama would be. And it was a hard decision for me in 2008, which, by the way, had ramifications for me politically. It was difficult. I mean, I was, um, to this day, I believe there are some women in this country that will never forgive me. Have they communicated um, that to you? Has anyone? Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, at the time, it was brutal. Uh, it has gotten better over time. And I think um, my full-throated advocacy for Hillary Clinton's presidency this time has helped. Um, but there are still some women that um, have said to me in no uncertain terms, never darken their door again, uh, some of my women supporters around the country. What do you say to those women when they say that to you? Uh, I understand. You know, I mean, I'm somebody who's all in when I'm in. uh, My passion gets me in trouble with some regularity along with my mouth. Um, I get it. Um, But, uh, you know, they, they are few and far between now. But it was um, something that was really difficult at the time. I want to conclude by asking you to fast forward to an imagined President Hillary Clinton in the White House and to think about the question of how much gender and, and identity will bedevil or not her if she if she gets there. When we think about Barack Obama and race, it was so important when he was a candidate. And it remained important when he was president, but it receded some as a day-to-day issue. And... I wonder if you think that will be the case for a first woman, President Hillary Clinton. I hope it will. I think she will immerse herself in the day-to-day difficult decision-making that you have to do as President of the United States, and I think the gender will uh, become less of an issue. There'll be moments, um, you know, I think all of us will kind of look on in either awe or horror as Bill Clinton becomes the appendage in the in the White House. We're all like trying to figure that how how that's actually gonna look and feel. But I think we're gonna see hopefully uh pictures of her and her family and I look forward to 
um, lots of pictures of her grandchildren around the White House Christmas tree. It would be great to have a grandmother in the White House as somebody who is very fond of that title with nine grandchildren myself. And I, I think that it will unconsciously be on people's mind that we now have a woman president. But I think her competence in the job uh, will fade out some of the newness of the idea that it's a woman. If she's elected president, will the glass ceiling have been shattered or briefly opened? And, and let me explain that. It's this idea of kind of exceptionalism. You know, uh, are all the factors in, that happen to be in place for her to get there, if she gets there, are they so unique that they will be hard to replicate and that we may find it difficult to elect another woman quickly or maybe even a very long while after? I don't think so. You know, I think we'll have to sift through the reality of this election. And the sad part is, regardless of who's elected president in November, our country uh, is going to remain divided because neither one of these candidates are going to go into office with a large cache of of popularity. But the other thing this election is going to produce is that, you know, really just about anybody can be a candidate for president. I mean, Donald Trump um, being the nominee of a major party in this country ought to wake people up that uh, if he could do this with all of his shortcomings, um, that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of women that are ready right now to run for president. The question is, after this meat grinder of an election, how many good people will want to run for president, women or men? And what kind of person is attracted to the debilitating process of running for president of the United States? Um, But we're going to have a lot more women in the pipeline. I think we're going to elect more women senators this November. We've got women governors. So I think it will be sooner rather than later that we'll see another viable woman candidate for president of the United States. Do you think that the senior senator from uh, Missouri would ever consider it? I No, but because I, what I just talked about. Um, I have been perilously close to presidential campaigns and seen exactly how this thing unwinds. And um, I, I am truly not interested in going through that or putting my family through it. But that doesn't mean I'm not interested in continuing to serve and seeing if I can't impact public policy in this country. But that particular meat grinder is is not my meat grinder of choice. Senator, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. For the last few weeks, it sure looked like our first female president was all but inevitable. But the numbers are changing. So it's that time of the episode. Nate Cohn, what's our number? The number is 82. What is 82? 82 is the percent chance the New York Times' presidential election model gives Hillary Clinton to win the election this November. I remember looking at my iPhone like a week and a half ago, and there was a news alert that said Hillary Clinton had hit 90%. So where did those eight points go? The last few weeks of polling just hasn't been as good for her as it had been in the few previous weeks. The CNN poll that came out a couple days ago actually had Trump in the lead. But even the other polls, whether they're in the battleground states or nationwide, have tended to point towards a much closer race. I mean, I think when this podcast first started, we talked about Hillary Clinton having maybe an eight or nine point lead in the most recent national polls. And I don't think we've had a single national poll that shows Clinton up by eight or nine points in at least two weeks and maybe three weeks. Is there good polling being done now? One of the things you seem to point out in a piece in the Times a couple days ago was that it doesn't seem there's a great deal of great polling. 
The problem is that good polling has gotten really expensive over the last few years. And so the major media organizations that are commissioning the top polls, including the New York Times, aren't polling as often as they used to. Now, I think that those top polls are going to start surveying again over the next couple of weeks ahead of the presidential debate. But we've gone through this period where most, not all, but most of the polls that we've seen have been from polls employing cheaper approaches, whether it's an automated poll that can't contact voters with cell phones as easily or the polls that are happening online. So that 82% incorporates those polls that you're a little less confident in, right? Yes, it does. So if you're in Hillary Clinton's campaign, is it freakout time? Well, they have better data than we do. The Clinton campaign's polling can incorporate a lot more data to make sure that what they're seeing isn't a change in enthusiasm, but an actual change in attitude among voters. So if they were to conclude that a meaningful number of their supporters are reconsidering their support, then maybe they do have to start wondering what they might need to do differently. Nate, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. That's it for this episode of The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. We'll be back on Tuesday. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc.